0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3 this morning as we look at these. I uh, just struck me as we sang that we sang it last Sunday night and I don't know why it didn't strike me the same way. But boy, when we sang that chorus, "Let the glory of your name." be the passion of the church. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. This kind of gripped me. I mean, it just kind of jumped out and, and grabbed me. I mean, I love let the righteous of God be a holy flame that burns too, but, but our passion, our desire, our purpose of Grace Baptist Church must be the glory of the name of Christ to exalt that and lift him up. And in our new members class, we're going to talk about that, what that means, how we we go about that as a church family. So I hope you'll be here for that, because let the glory of his name be the passion, the absolute passion of our church. I pray that that is exactly what it will be. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there's enough there for us to spend several weeks. And, and if you tie in verses 4 through 6, you, you even get a much longer time, and that's what we're going to do. So this this morning is basically by way of introduction of verses 1 through 3. I want you to see several things here because there are really, really only three points I want to bring out as we look at this today. There will be more in weeks to come. But, but what I want you to see are three things here. I want you to see what we must reject. What we as Christians must reject in verse, verse 1, the first part there. Then I want you to see how we must run. Uh, The title of the sermon is Consider Christ and Run. As I put that in, I thought about that might be misunderstood. It, it It might be understood, Consider Christ and Run from Him. That's not what I meant. Consider Christ and run toward Him. Consider Christ and run the race that He has set before us. We'll talk about the race in a minute. So what we must reject, how we must run, and where we must look. It's just three simple things that that the writer here sort of uh, over over, over everything that he has to say about this whole of the Christian life. He starts out by, by simply talking about therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, who in the world is he talking about there? Those he's just mentioned in chapter eleven. We we have all these witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, that have lived by faith, that have demonstrated faith in the coming of Christ and faith in God, they're our example. They are a cloud of witnesses for us to look at, for us to remember, for us to consider, for us to think about, because we have a great cloud of witnesses. Now some people interpret that phrase as the writer of Hebrews saying, we've got all these people that are right up here looking down on us. They're watching us. They're observing us. Some I've even heard some uh, preachers say before that if you have a loved one that's gone on before you, don't worry, they're looking down on you so they can protect you. I want to say to that, baloney. That's the nicest word I can say. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying we have examples to follow. We have people who are living as a cloud of witnesses before us. But let me tell you something. When a person gets to heaven, and I don't care how close you were to somebody and how much you love them, they're not worrying about what's going on in your life right now. They've got one focus and one focus only. You think that song says, let the glory of his name be the passion of the church. Let me tell you something. When you're in heaven, the glory of his name is all you see and all you care about. I mean, your focus is on Christ. It, it, it says all tears have been dried, and, and there is no worry, and there is no pain in heaven. Man, if they were looking down at us, if my mom and dad were looking down at me this morning because of, of uh, uh, they're now in heaven, they'd be very discouraged in some ways. And they'd be, they'd be upset with, with some things. and It, it, it bothered them man, they're not focusing on Bill Haynes. They're focusing on Christ and worshiping Him. And all that the writer here is saying is, I want you to understand, we have a great cloud of witnesses who have witnessed to the faith, who have demonstrated faith, who have walked the walk and run the race, and we have those as our example. And those are important. But basically what he's saying here is we've got all those that gone before us that we can look to, even in the Old Testament. But I want you to understand, we've got one even far greater than they are. We've got one that is beyond Moses. We've got one that's greater than Abraham. We've got one that has endured and shown faith greater than Joseph has. We have got one that over, overarches every single one of those because every single one of those was looking to him. They were looking forward to him. And so here in these three verses, you, you've got the writer saying there are some important things about the Christian life and about faith that you must grasp. I think another foundational principle we must remember as we read these three verses, he is writing to Christians who are suffering. He's writing to Christians who are going through difficult times. Uh, Some of them are are man-made. Some of them are persecutions. Many of them are being persecuted because they have turned to faith in Christ. Uh, I mentioned last Sunday morning as we were talking about persecution and all, uh, said Masu in in Afghanistan, who had been imprisoned and condemned for converting to Christ. And he was under a death sentence, scheduled to be uh, executed any day now. Well, I-, I, was re- I rejoiced on Thursday when it came across the news wires that the prayers of Christ church had been answered. Uh, said was released. Not only was he released, he, he left and-, and left Afghanistan altogether. So there's none of that over his head anymore. And his family is with him. Now continue to pray for him that somehow we don't make him somehow a Christian superstar and and destroy everything that Christ is doing in his life. Because I understand there's already about 15 book deal offers out for him to write a book about it. So just pray that God will protect him in that. But but what the writer here is saying is, no matter what your difficulties, no matter what your circumstances, no matter how much you struggle with, with physical pain, with persecution with misunderstanding, you're, you, you will only handle life's difficulties according to your focus. You'll handle every life difficulty, every life, life struggle that comes into your life according to your focus. Now the writer here is wanting you to have the right focus. And he's saying any other focus will, will cause you to fall. Any other, any, other, uh, any other focus will cause you to sink. But if your focus is right, your faith will stay strong. Remember, you've got to remember back months in this book where there was this danger of many of them turning back to Judaism, turning back to the law, and departing from the grace of Christ. And, and that's what he's writing about. Don't be tempted about sinking when you have such a great... Savior. And he will describe Him in some interesting ways here in just a minute. If you're sinking, it's because of what you're looking at. If you're struggling, it's because of what you're looking at. And there is an antidote to that, and there's a cure for that. There's a, a redemption from that in what the writer is saying in these first three verses. First of all, we, we said we want to look at what we must reject. He said in verse verse 1 that. that that first part, there's a cloud of witness surrounding us, so let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now he is not not without reason using athletic terms here. He's talking about running. He's talking about a race that is to be run. And in those very first verses, he's saying, listen, with all these witnessing tes- witnesses testifying to what the race must be, let us come and lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. If I were going to run a race this afternoon, sort of having a heart attack probably for doing it, but if I were going to run one anyway, uh, the first thing I would do is I'd get out of these clothes. I mean, I'd take this coat off and the tie off and I'd go to a private place and put on some shorts and take off these, uh, these wing tips and put on, some, uh, put on some running shoes of sort or maybe as they did in, in Paul's day, just run barefooted. But, but I would take off all these things that kind of bind me and long pants that could trip me up and I would get in some running shorts so that I could run the race more effectively. When a a runner runs a race in the Olympics, they don't say, hey, the kings are going to be watching, the presidents are going to be watching, the whole world is going to be watching. We're going to dress up in the best clothes that we possibly can. That would be an encumbrance to the race. And so the writer of Hebrews says here, if you're going to run in this race, you're going to have to take off every encumbrance in your life. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Every encumbrance. Every encumbrance is anything that keeps you from looking to Christ. Every, every encumbrance is anything that causes you to depend on the things of this world rather than to depend on Christ. Any encumbrance is anything that weights you down. As a matter of fact, the word he uses there when he talks about waiting, being encumbrance, he's talking about, he uses a word that talks about a weight that you could carry on your back. And then he adds to that, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin that so easily entangles us, entangling us will trip us up. We're to lay aside every burden, every weight, every encumbrance, and every sin that will entangle us and and lead us into disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hear this. This is very important. I want you to know that I truly believe this with all my heart. An ounce of sin will destroy you. But a thousand pounds of suffering will only make you stronger if your focus is right. An ounce of sin will destroy you. It'll entangle you. It'll grow like a web around you and trip you up and cause you to fall and cause you to sink. But a thousand pounds of persecution, if your focus is right, will just cause you to be stronger. I remember when I was in high school and I, I played a little football and, and, and I was never very good at it, but I really thought I was. But uh, I remember one of the first things we did when we went out on the football field when I started playing and it was we had this sled that the coach usually stood on and shouted obscenities at us. But we, but we had this sled, and he would ride it, and our idea was to hit that sled with all our power and move it forward. And we had a single sled, and we had a multiple sled. And I remember the first day, he said, we're going to try every, all you new guys on the single sled. And so I said, I'm going to hit it with all I've got. And, and I did. I got down, and I charged that sled, and I hit it as hard as I could, and it didn't move. And he said, well, you're going to have to do it again, Haynes. And so I backed up, and I hit it as hard as I could again, and the, 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 the pressure was against me, and I would hit it, and, and it maybe moved a millimeter. And I went through that, and through that, there was always that pressure pushing against me, but there was always that focus that I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to press on. And, and, and what he's saying here is, there are certain things that will entangle you, but pressure will not cause you to fail Pressure will cause you to be strengthened if your focus is in the right direction. So many times our focus is on, uh, my focus was on the sled, when I had to focus beyond the sled to see where I could drive it. So often our focus is on these encumbrances. We've got these weights around us. We've got all these things happening. And and we've got sin in our life that entangles us and trips us up. I like the way David prayed in one of the Psalms when he said, Lord, guard your servant from presumptuous sins. I I think that's kind of what the writer here is thinking about. The same thing David was thinking about when he said, guard your servant from presumptuous sins. You know what a presumptuous sin is? A presumptuous sin is a sin that we just excuse. And we say, uh, you know, I know that's sin, I know that's wrong, I know I shouldn't be doing that, or I should be doing the other, but I know that's sin, but you know, God will forgive me. I'll just go ahead and do it anyway, because God will forgive me. And, and we just presume upon the grace and the forgiveness of God. Now, now I, I, I understand that a believer, if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But it doesn't mean that you take the sins lightly that are in the present and in the future. Matter of fact, according to the writer here, we ought to take them very seriously because those sins will entangle us. David went on in that verse. He said, guard your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. That's significant. Presumptuous sins, those we just excuse ourselves and say, well, that's no big deal. I don't don't have any of the big ten, you know, so these little sins are no big deal. So I'll just overlook those because surely God will forgive us. Those sins that we excuse, David says, will enslave us. They will rule over us. And the writer of Hebrews here says, they will entangle us. They'll wrap us up. They will cause us to stumble. They'll cause us to sink spiritually. And the writer says, listen, let's reject those. Let's lay aside the encumbrance. Let's lay aside that which is slowing us down. And, And let's reject the sin that so easily entangles us. Why? Because the second point. How we must run. He said, uh, lay aside that sin, lay aside those encumbrances, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word endurance is the same word that has meaning of perseverance. Persevering, enduring, carrying on, not giving up, not giving not bowing to pressure not bowing to, to to things that would be the circumstances that would cause us to, to struggle let's run this race with endurance i heard i think it was jerry bridges one time say the christian life is not a sprint it's a law it's a it's a cross country race it's not a sprint where you get down on the starter's block and the gun fires, you run 100 yards or whatever, and it's over. So you give it all you've got, you run as hard as you can, and then you, give, then you just kind of let down. But the Christian life is a race that has been run with endurance, continuing, pressing on. Yeah, on uh, on, on a cross-country race because of the terrain, you're liable to stumble and fall. But you don't say, okay, I'm done. But by God's grace, you're back up and you're running again. And you don't give up and you don't stop. You just keep pressing on because your eyes are fixed on the right thing. You're, You're running with perseverance because you understand there's a finish line that you've got to reach. And if you give up, you'll never reach it. And if you've got encumbrances and in sin entangling you, you'll you'll not run a race with perseverance. You'll sink, you'll fall, you'll struggle. So there's things we must reject, and there's a race we must run. And then he deals with where we must look. This is fascinating to me. New American Standard says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, perfect, excuse me, the author and the perfecter of faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. There, there are other ways that it's been said. King James says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The NIV, 1984 version says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Uh, the, The 2010 NIV says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The English Standard Version, ESV, says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the Amplified Version says, Looking away from all that will distract us to Jesus who is the leader and the source of our faith. And He's also its finisher. That is, bringing it to maturity and to perfection. I mean, all of those are similar, but just a little different nuance given in different translations. And and there's probably a reason for that. These two words, the the author and the finisher, or, or the author and the perfecter, or the pioneer and the Perfector of our faith, however you want to say it or however your translation says it. There's probably this very, of those words, because both those words are very deep words. And they're very rarely used in the New Testament. They're, they're, fair, they're not totally unique to this passage, but they're fairly unique to this passage. They're, they're, they're dealing with, with something that if we don't grasp, we will miss. Now, it says fixing our eyes on Jesus or looking unto Jesus. But notice that the author doesn't stop there. The writer of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He could have just said, look to Jesus. We sometimes give that kind of counsel. Very nebulous, very general. Just, uh, Just look to Jesus, you know. Just keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. And many times, in the midst of our circumstances, the draw and the attraction and the, the struggle in the midst of circumstances are so strong and so so, so so horrible that just to say, just look at Jesus. It's kind of a simplistic and maybe even a difficult thing to do. So the writer here says... I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, and he gives us how we're to do it in a very specific way. There's real specificity here. He says, this is how you're to do it, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Now, understand also that that, that phrase, is, is, it doesn't come across in this English translation, is there? but it is somewhat of a negative term. That's why the Amplified may be the closest to having it exactly right when he says, looking away to Jesus. I think the the writer is somewhat assuming that we're going to be looking at the circumstances. The the writer's assuming that we're going to have our eyes fixed on those, whether it's somebody coming against us in persecution, or whether it's an illness, or whether it's a a family issue, or, or whatever it might be. We're going to have our eyes fixed on those things. There's no doubt about it. And so the writer's saying here, when he says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, he's really saying, look away from those things and look unto him who is the author and the finisher of your faith. Look away. It's a lot like what we talked about last week a little bit when we talked about gazing and glancing. We're not to gaze on our problems. We're to gaze upon God and glance at the problems. But most of the time, we gaze upon the problems and occasionally glance to God and just ask for some help from Him. But the writer here is saying, no, you need to fix your eyes. Boy, that is a strong term. You need to focus intently. You need to, with all of your being, spiritually and every way else, you need to, as as a Christian, focus on Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can't do that until you come to Christ. So that, may sound, that may sound somewhat nonsensical to you if you're not a Christian. Because only a Christian can focus intently with, with, a, with, a, with a laser sharp focus upon Jesus. But that's what the writer here is saying that we must do. And we must do it in a very specific way. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author and the perfecter. The author and the finisher. The author and the perfecter. The pioneer and the completer of our faith. I mean, you can go on with that and play with that all day long, uh, just carrying that out. But understand this, that's significant. Jesus is the author. He's the pioneer. He's the leader. He's the founder of our faith. But that's not unique. Do you know that's not unique? I mean, we understand that Jesus is the author of Christianity. That's our faith. That's what we believe. He's the author of it. But guess what? Islam has an author. Muhammad. Muhammad is the author of Islam. Buddhism has an author, and that's Buddha. Confucianism has an author, and that's Confucius. And you can go, Hindu has all sorts of authors in it that have written about it and brought it about. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Every religion on the face of the earth has an author. But only one has a finisher, only one has a perfecter. Only one is, is in there with you all the time as your guide, as your protection, as your strength, as your source. Only one is the finisher, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, Muhammad can say, listen, here are the seven pillars of the five, how many pillars there are. Here are the pillars of the faith. And, And you follow those, you do those, and if you do them right, you can perhaps reach paradise. Hinduism says, here are the principles whereby you can reach a a nirvana, a a perfect existence. Here's the way you do it. And you can follow these teachings, and if you do them right, and if you do them diligently, then you can do those. In essence, all other religions kind of start you out and put you on probation. And if you fulfill the probationary period, then you make it. Hear this, Jesus not only started our faith, but He served and relieved us of the probation. He started it and He will perfect it. I I love what Paul said to the Philippian Christians. I don't have to turn there. Paul said, You know, and we know this, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it or will complete it in that day. Paul said to the, to the Philippian Christians, I know that if God has begun a work in you, He is the author of the work in you. It's not just an emotional bent. It's not just a, uh, some kind of churchianity. It's not some kind of false faith. But if God began a work in you by His Holy Spirit, changing you and converting you, that same God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit will not only start it, but He will finish it in your life. Now, now that doesn't mean we just say, okay, hallelujah. I just just kind of sit back and wait on Jesus to do it. No, there, there's to be a running of the race. There's to be a... a, a, a an intentional laying aside of of every encumbrance. There's to be an intentional laying aside of every sin. There's to be confession. There's to be repentance. There's to be all these things continuing to take place in the believer's life. But it's not for salvation all over again. It's for your sanctification. It's a part of the process whereby you are kept clean and walking and running the race that you've been called to run. No other faith has anybody who begins it and finishes it on our behalf except Jesus. And he did it on the cross. He did it on the cross. On that cross, he bore the wrath of God. On that cross, he bore the anger of God towards sin. On that cross, he bore your sin and my sin if we've trusted in Him. And that sin was born there completely. But understand this, what He bore on that cross is what you deserve to bear. It's what you deserved. And yet He bore it in your place. He is the author. He is the finisher. He is the substitute. He is the sacrifice on our behalf. And it says here, We won't even get past verse 2, I don't think. It says here, "...who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, who is set down at the right hand of the throne of God." Now look at that. "...who for the joy set before Him endured the cross." He endured the suffering. He endured the pain, spiritual pain more than physical pain. He endured the suffering of the cross because of joy. Now wait a minute. He was God. He he was God in the flesh. No no question there. But, But even the joy? How could He face the cross with joy? I mean, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if this cup can pass from me, if I don't have to go to that cross, Lord, can you let it be done another way? I mean, he prayed diligently that he would be set free. I mean, the cross was a horrible thing. And it wasn't the nails in the hands and the spear in the side. It wasn't hanging there and suffocating. We've talked about that in the past but it was the immensity of the wrath of God that was going to be poured upon Him for you and me. It was Him experiencing, if you you will, hell on that cross in our place. That was the horror of the cross. And yet the writer says He did it with joy. For the joy set before Him. How can He say that? I think quite simply it's because Jesus had sight of the big picture. If he only saw the cross, that could be very, very discouraging. It, it was to the apostles. Remember that? They ran. They hid. They cried. They, they, they shuddered for their own life. I mean, they, didn't, they thought it was all over. Now, if you and I could go back to the apostles in some ecclesiastical time machine of sorts and go back to, to Peter and John in their fear and in their trembling and their weeping and say, listen guys, don't worry, it's great. It, it, there's, there's joy going to come out of this. They would look at you and they'd say, are you out of your mind? You say, no, see, I've, I've got this book. A- and it, it tells, I've, I've been reading it, I know what it says, A- and it tells what happens after this night, after this day. In three days, he's going to come back from the dead. He's go- I mean, they would have said to you, it's over, guy, don't you understand? We based everything on it. We, we gave up our livelihoods. We gave up our families. We followed Him. And, and here He was doing miracles throughout the land and, and teaching teachings like had never been heard before. Why, why he, was, he was bringing about redemption through His teaching and through these miracles. He was almost wiping sickness out in Palestine, it seemed like. It's all over. But you could say to Peter and John, No, you don't understand. You understand there's a bigger picture taking place here. Re- the redemption work of Christ is not over. The, re- the redemption work of Christ just took place. And three days from now, He's going to rise from the dead, and you're going to see Him again, and, and He's going he's to breathe upon you His Holy Spirit, and, and you're going you're to be witnesses and powerful witnesses throughout this world, and that death on the cross is going to turn the world upside down. Or right side up, however you look at it. I mean, they would have thought, well, we don't understand that. she said, no, but I've got the big picture here. I can see what's taking place. And Jesus had the big picture. He knew what was going to happen. And He helps you to face suffering. We'll talk more about that next week. How, you, how He helps you in this for you and me to face the suffering that we get into in this life because of the joy that was set before Him because of the big picture. I, I heard Tim Keller on Friday night down in Nashville speak and he was talking about Mark chapter 5 which has nothing to do with Hebrews chapter 12 but he did say one thing that really just kind of caught my attention he was talking about when we come to times of prayer and you know these apostles were praying Lord don't let him die when it comes to times of prayer we pray things and we say God didn't answer our prayer God didn't do what we asked him to do. And Keller made this statement. It was, it, was, it was piercing to me. It was probing to me. He said, God always answers your prayer and gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. Think about that. In answering prayer, God gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what What he knows, he sees the big picture. We see very limited. And that's why it is critical. That's why it is absolutely necessary that we don't fix our eyes on the circumstances. We fix our eyes on him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, all of that was helping these particular Christians face persecution and suffering. Next week, we're going to talk more about how all of that, with verse 3 involved, helps us to face suffering and persecutions and disappointments. By hopefully getting a picture, getting a little bit of insight into the big picture. Let's pray together. And Father, we do bow before you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our Savior. You're the author of our faith, both the faith of Christianity and our individual faith. You're the author. Paul said faith is a gift of God. You're the author of it. And you're the finisher. Who will bring a charge against your people, against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against us? No one can, because you're the one who has saved us and forgiven us. Father, we're grateful for that. Father, we thank you that you instruct us, you command us as our Lord to fix our eyes upon you. And you promise us great things in that that we'll pursue again next week a little more in depth. But Lord, you show us your truth. You show us your presence. You you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There is no such thing as God helps those who help help themselves. The the real fact of life is God helps those who are totally helpless and can't help themselves. And that's where we were before Christ Lord I pray this morning if there's anyone in here who needs Christ who, who is trying to get good enough to come to Christ who's trying to get trying to clean up their life and then say I'll come to Jesus then that you'll show them that's, that, is, that is foolishness as your Spirit draws us, we come to Christ just as we are. And then you do the work of finishing it. You do the work of cleaning it up. You do the work of changing us. Father, we thank you for that. Now, Lord, strengthen us in your Word as we sing in a moment. Pray, Lord, that you will guide and direct men and women to your calling to faith, to trust you and make it public through believers baptism I I pray for others Lord that you're just leading to be a part of this church family that you will make that clear to them today Father we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen